Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The benefits of knowing Christ. They are more than anyone here could count. For example, when Christ takes hold of you, you know this. He takes mud, puts it on your eyes, and all of a sudden you see for the first time, not visibly, but you see spiritual facets of existence that you never knew were there before. You're like Dorothy leaving Kansas and things go from grayscale into technicolor. That's the experience you've had if you're in Christ. That's a benefit of knowing Christ. Another benefit of knowing Christ, when you come to know Christ, you give up the pennies of wealth that the world promises, things that are vulnerable to rust and to thief, the treasures of this world that cannot satisfy you or if they try, cannot do it for long. You give that up and what do you gain? That is rubbish, Paul will say, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. You gain an inheritance. You become a child of God, and you do not have now treasures on earth that are temporary, but you have an inheritance in heaven that the apostle Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That means think of this benefit of knowing Christ. It doesn't matter right now where you fall on that socioeconomic scale, what your status is, how much your income is, socially, where you are. Doesn't matter, no matter what that is, you have, Scripture says, a crown of righteousness kept in heaven for you. You will judge angels. You are a child of a great king and have a kingly royal inheritance waiting for you right now. If that's not a benefit, I don't know what a benefit is. But lastly, and we could go on forever, one more benefit of knowing Christ and the one that we are going to emphasize today because it is the one Paul will emphasize in our text is this. When you become part of the family of God, you become part of the family of God. You right now have access to a community that is unparalleled in this world. There are shadows of it among unbelievers, but it can't reach what you have, what you have access to. The family of God himself, a rich community. Truly, our Savior said to us in the days of his flesh, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. Note the multiplier, one hundred. Fold. Jesus said, if you, in order to come into his family, have to lose your earthly biological family, you will, in doing that, gain something 100 times greater. Earthly biological family in this world is, by nature, the closest of relationships. And Jesus takes the closest human relationship and says, if you lose that, I will give you something 100 times 
better. If you have to leave brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, all very good things, but if you have to leave that to enter the family of God, Jesus says, now in this time, you get 100 times more than that. That is a benefit of knowing Christ. How do you gain 100 times more? Well, because the moment you become a Christian, you are now united spiritually, mysteriously, but it's true, you are united to believers across this entire world and through all time, a great cloud of witnesses. They are now your brothers and sisters, mother, father. These are now your family. But it's not just 100 times greater because there's so many more of us. If you're really a Christian, it's 100 times greater because it's 100 times richer, closer, more meaningful. That's the kind of community you have access to as a believer God didn't make earthly brothers, sisters, families. He didn't make them as the primary thing and then when we come to Christ, we just use that as a picture. Oh, we're brothers and sisters kind of like that. It's reverse. Primary in God's mind was a family of redeemed people, brothers, sisters, united together in a community and then he makes biological families as a shadow of that. This is greater what you have in Christ is greater than a biological family, which is a very great blessing. This is why when Jesus' own biological siblings, his brothers and his mother, came to him once, trying to get to him through the crowd, Jesus said to the messenger, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? And he looked at believers sitting around him and said, behold, here are my mother and my brothers. Christ has started a new family. He's the firstborn among many siblings, many brothers and sisters. God is our father. The Holy Spirit unites us all together better than could ever happen in an earthly family. What family on earth has something better than this? This is Christian community. And there's nothing better. There's nothing better. There's no better community on this earth than that. Whether you're aware of this or not, this is a benefit you have in Christ. And as we begin this body of Paul's letter to the Philippians, just like I said last week, what Paul is doing in this letter is teaching us how to think, think this way. And this morning he begins by teaching you how should you think about the people sitting next to you this morning, in this room, other believers. And he's going to say, if you think that way, don't think that way. Think this way about them. This is the way that we are to think about community in Christ. So with that in mind, let's see how Paul thinks about community, his relationship with these Philippian believers, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because... 
I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You can't see this in the English, but in the original Greek, Verses one through, or sorry, three through seven, they are one sentence. You know Paul does that sometimes. One long run-on sentence entirely connected. The controlling verb is there at the beginning. I thank my God. And all the rest modifies that. All the way down to verse seven. When you get to verse eight, even though it is its own sentence, notice it begins with the word for or because. It's a different sentence, but it's attached to the other sentence, to three through seven. It's explanatory. It's explaining what was just said. So really, three through eight clumped together. That's why we're talking about all of them this morning. And the best I can tell, even though there are a lot of small thoughts on this one big Thanksgiving, the best I can tell, the center of verses three through eight is your favorite verse in the section, verse six. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Good job memorizing that one, because I do think that's the core of this passage. The reason I say that is the and at the beginning, and I am sure of this in the ESV. In the ESV, it starts a new sentence. Like I said, this is not a new sentence. In the Greek... This is referring back to everything that's been said. Really, you could say, just as, and he continues on. What that means is that this confidence Paul feels for the Philippians, in verse 6, God began the work, he'll complete it. The confidence he feels there, pointing back, verses 3, 4, and 5, support that confidence. They point to that confidence, that confidence is explained by verses 3, 4, 5. That's what the and means at the beginning. And when you get to verse 7, right after verse 6 here, notice how it starts. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. What is this way? Verse 6. So, verses 3, 4, 5 support verse 6, the confidence. Verses 7 and 8, they're attached together. They point back and support verse 6 as well. So that's why I put 6 in the middle, okay? If that's confusing, just think of it. 6 is the center of this passage, the center of Paul's thanksgiving. It's the confidence he feels toward these believers. That's at the heart of it. Or maybe a better metaphor would be Paul is giving us a pyramid. That's the shape of this thanksgiving. And at the pinnacle of the pyramid, the very top, is verse 6. Paul wants the Philippians to know when he thinks about them, he thinks what? Confidence in a good future for them. But that confidence is based on what? Well, that's what the rest of the pyramid's about. His affection for them. And the affection is the verses before and the verses after. So that's how we're going to order this today because it's interesting to us, of course, to know how Paul thinks about these believers because that's how we have to think about believers. 
We are going then to consider the way Paul thinks about the Philippians in these two ways. Starting at the bottom of the pyramid, the affection that Paul feels for them. Verses 3 through 5, 7 and 8. And once we've built that foundation, we're going to go to the top of the pyramid in conclusion and see the confidence Paul feels toward these believers, which is built on his affection for them. That's the logic of it. Hope that wasn't too confusing, but that's the way, I mean, this is confusing. It's one big sentence. It's the way that Paul gave it to us, so we'll try to understand it best we can. This is how we have to think about each other, affection and confidence. So let's begin by looking at the verses around verse 6, and we'll come there at the end. We're looking first at the affection Paul feels toward the family of God in Philippi. So let's start just with the verses before verse 6, okay? And then we'll go after. So look again at the verses before 6. Here's Paul's affection. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until If you're familiar with Paul, you know it's not unusual for him to start a letter like this. It's actually the way he starts most of his letters. Give you an example. Here's Romans. It starts, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Sound familiar? What he does there is what he does here. I thank God. Why? Because of something about you. That's the pattern, and it holds pretty steady throughout most of Paul's letters in the New Testament. I'll give you another one. 1 Corinthians starts like this. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You see the pattern? Thanks to God, here is why. Actually, there's a little more to the pattern we won't get into today. Paul usually says, I thank my God, this is why, and this is what I pray for you. For sake of time, we're looking at, I thank my God, this is why, and next week we'll look at what he prays for them. This week our focus is, in our text, I thank my God, and because of your partnership in the gospel. It's the usual form for Paul. That's how he starts his letters. Now, I hope I can point out something obvious to you right here in this text. Philippians, we're just starting it. Paul could begin this letter any way he wants. He's done his standard address, Paul and Timothy, to the Philippian Christians. He's given his usual blessing, grace and peace. Now he's starting the letter. He could start any way he wants, but here's the obvious thing. Paul chooses not just in Philippians, but in every letter except Galatians, because they had some issues, but in every other letter, he starts like this, and it is positive. You see that? Three through eight is not negative. It is very positive when he's expressing his attitude toward them. Think about Paul. There he sits in a Roman jail, thinking about, praying for the Philippian believers. He's not heard from them in a long time. It's the ancient world. You can't get 
texts. You can't read emails. And here comes, we'll see later, Epaphroditus. He's the man who brought this letter to Paul in Rome. And Epaphroditus comes, Paul rejoices, and now Epaphroditus brings Paul up to speed. How are the believers doing there in that small church plant back in Philippi? And Epaphroditus shares with Paul not just good things, as we'll see. He shares good things and bad things because that's how churches go. All churches, our church, every church, good things and bad things. That leaves Paul with a choice. He's got good and bad things in front of him. He's writing this letter to the Philippians. He can start any way he wants to. And he makes the conscious choice in all his letters to begin with good things. Positive things. There were many good things that he could focus on. This isn't flattery. I mean, look at them. They, with Epaphroditus, had sent financial gifts, material gifts, to help support Paul in that Roman prison, the ancient world. Prisons were not nice places, and people had to support you. The Philippians, as they'd often done, they were sending a gift. We'll see that later. So that's why he says, I thank God, in our text. Verse 5, because of this partnership in the gospel. That's a good thing. And he says that's happened from the first day until now. They supported him when he was in Philippi. They supported him when he had to run away and, or leave prison there and move on to Thessalonica. They supported him at the beginning of the gospel going out in Macedonia, that region of the world. We'll see that later. He says, from the first day until now, you guys have been partners with me in the gospel, supporting him. So that's the good. But like I said, Epaphroditus didn't just tell him good things. <laughs> Because as we'll see in chapter 4, there are also bad things happening in the church. The biggest one that comes to mind is there's a major conflict in the church. I know, it's surprising that a church would have a conflict. But the Philippian church has a major conflict. It seems major because Paul's going to name two women, Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4. And he's going to say, help these women get along. That's a bad thing in the church, but notice Paul did not begin, and he could have, but he did not begin his letter to the Philippians this way. Paul and Timothy, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, tell Euodia and Syntyche to grow up and get their act together and stop hindering the gospel by their conflict. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He starts by saying, I see the good, I see the bad, there's always both in this life. I Thank my God for the good. Some of us in this body, in every body, some of us are gifted, and I use that word intentionally, but are gifted to have more critical minds. I don't mean that completely negative. Some of you see problems more clearly and more easily. Okay, maybe you're the engineering type, STEM, I don't know, but you see the problems and that applies to a local church as well. It just is more obvious to you and perhaps along with that, you have a sense of justice and what is right and when you see things in any given church that are not right and not the way that they're supposed to be, you feel that deeply. You see the problem, it's even maybe for you difficult to tolerate that in a local body. And I did on purpose use the word gifted, of course, there are a lot of problems that can come with that if unchecked, but 
God's checking it by his word right now, so we're not worried about that. But if you're just wired that way, you've got a little bit of Eeyore in you, or for Narnia, you've got a little puddle glum in you, and you're wired to think that way and to be a bit more pessimistic, there is something very good if held in check about that. Listen, imagine if tomorrow everyone like that in this body were gone and the only people you had left were the naive optimists like myself. It would be a disaster for this local body. I mean that in all seriousness and you know that that's true. We need people in the body who can assess problems and feel them and take action to resolve them or come to the elders. Let's talk about it. Let's not be passive. Let's not pretend these issues are not here. So if you're wired that way, I thank God in my every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Because I need you, you need me, and I need you. We need different types of people within the body. Now that being said, I do want to point out, Paul could think very critically. He was well-trained under Gamaliel. Paul was a Pharisee. He was advancing quickly before he came to know Christ. And if you read his letters, including this one, you know that he's aware of problems. He's not naively optimistic like I can be. And yet, when he chooses how to start every letter except to the Galatians, he starts on a positive note. He knows about Yodia and Syntyche, and he's going to deal with it. Okay, those of you who say, we got to deal with problems. Yes, he is going to deal with it in chapter 4, but not in chapter 1. He's going to start on a positive note. There's something very significant about that. I mean, even the Corinthian church, which was an immoral and very messy place, you know how Paul begins that letter? I give thanks to my God always for you. Look, is Paul just flattering is this just lying to get them to like him? Is this just social convention? No. Paul chooses to say this first. The reason we know it's not just flattery, which maybe I or some of us could be prone to flattery, just fluffy false stuff. The reason this isn't flattery for Paul is he gives a genuine reason in the text that he feels this way. Why so positive about them? Look at verse 5. Because, here's why, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's a reason for it. And even more than that, you know it's not flattery because of how he talks about his prayers for them. It's not just that, oh, randomly he thinks of them, tells them, you guys are great. It's that he's been praying, he says in the text, in all my remembrance, remembering them, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. When Paul is there in chains in a Roman prison praying to God with joy over the Philippian saints. The Philippian saints don't know about it. They're not there. Paul prays that way because that's how he really feels about them. This is not flattery, but this is positive you want unity in this church? Here's a cue for us. Look, in any of your relationships with other people in this church, anybody at all, here's how it's going to go. 
you may see someone and you, if you know them well, you're aware of 10 things in front of you. Five of them are vices. Five of them are virtues. And you can argue about the ratio, but let's just say five and five with the person in front of you. And that's going to apply to everybody. We all have our problems and good things, okay? Five and five. So, what are you going to focus on? When you are talking with people, where is the emphasis going to fall? You choose that. What we see in Paul is he's going to deal with the vices. He doesn't leave the vices. He doesn't pretend they're not there. He deals with them, but he deals with them in chapter 4. And in chapter 1, he starts with the virtues. He starts with the good, not to flatter, but because his heart is overflowing with affection toward the Philippians. And if you feel affection toward someone, then you do tend to look more at the virtues than the vices. Call it naive, call it empty optimism, but that's the way Paul is operating in his thinking toward them. And really, that's essential to healthy fellowship. John Piper, pastor, preacher, writer, he applies this same principle to marriage. And I think you can apply this not just to marriage, but to any of our relationships. In his book, This Momentary Marriage, which if you haven't read it, it's the one I recommend more than any other marriage book, very good. But Piper notes that when you first get married, it's like you're walking out into an open, grassy field. Very beautiful scenery. Just left the altar. Everything's sunny and nice, but as you walk along, eventually you step in something. And when you look down, there have been cows in this field. You fill in the blank. There are unpleasant substances in the field. Cow pies. These, Piper writes are the sins and flaws and idiosyncrasies and weaknesses and annoying habits in you and in your spouse. You try to forgive them and endure them with grace, but they have a way of dominating the relationship. It may not even be true, but sometimes it feels like that's all there is, cow pies. Piper, therefore, argues that in your marriage, and this is true in your relationships in the church, you need a compost pile. Here's what he says. You both look at each other and simply admit that there are a lot of cow pies, but you say to each other, you know, there is more to this relationship than cow pies. And we are losing sight of that because we keep focusing on these cow pies. Let's throw them all in the compost pile. When we have to, we'll go there and smell it and feel bad and deal with it the best we can, chapter four for Paul. And then we're going to walk away from that pile and set our eyes on the rest of the field. We'll pick some favorite paths and hills that we know are not strewn with cow pies. And we will be thankful for the part of the field that is sweet. Paul, in this and every letter, takes his shovel. He knows the nasty stuff. And he takes it and he doesn't put it first except with the Galatians because the gospel was at risk. But in every other case, he starts in places where he knows there's not going to be cow pies. I think that's healthy for any believer to do. He takes Yodi and Syntyche's conflict, and he doesn't focus on that. He puts it out there later and says, right now, I want to focus on your partnership in the gospel with me from the first day until now. I thank my God because of that partnership. So what you see before verse 6 here 
you see the bottom of the pyramid, this affection that Paul feels toward the Philippians, and he's chosen to emphasize it. But what about when you get after verse 6? Because that's part of the basis as well. What you find after verse 6 is the same thing. Paul expressing his affection in how he thinks about the Philippians. So look at this, starting verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In some ways, Paul is simply restating verses 3 through 5. He says, I hold you in my heart. That's like, I thank my God. With joy, with joy, I hold you in my heart. I feel affection towards you. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he expresses his affection, his thanksgiving, the good, and then he gives you a reason. It's not flattery, it's not empty. For, he says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel, which here he clarifies for us. He says, there's two parts to it. It's in my imprisonment because they're sending him supplies so he can stay alive in his imprisonment. And it's in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Those are legal terms. They are side by side with Paul in Philippi while he's in Rome, not only supporting him as he defends the gospel through public trial in Rome, but they are also in their own right, in Philippi, doing the very same thing. I don't know if any of them were in prison, but it's very possible. The Philippians love to throw Christians in prison if their origin is any example there in Acts. In fact, at the end of chapter 1, Paul will say that these Philippians are engaged in the same conflict that he had among unbelievers. And so, he can't help but love them. That's the reason I give thanks because I feel affection for you for. And notice the kind of affection he feels for them. It's the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection in the Greek literally has to do with inner organs that you have. That's kind of like when we talk about the organ of the heart and we think of that as a seat of feeling and affection and emotion. Jewish person this time, would also consider other internal organs, maybe your liver and other things, are involved in you feeling this because when you feel an emotion towards someone, especially affection, it begins with a sort of warmth right here, right? So that's what he's talking about. He feels this warmth, this affection, but it is the affection of Christ Jesus that he feels for them. Is there a greater affection that one believer can feel for another? If you love me with the affection of Christ Jesus, that's the pinnacle. There's nothing above that. What he means is the way that Christ Jesus feels affection for you, that's how I feel affection for you. Or even it's as if Christ Jesus were loving you through me. That's an ideal of fellowship and community. Really, Paul is fulfilling what Jesus said in John 13, 34, 
We are to love each other. This is a new commandment. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Is that the way you think about the people in this room? And this isn't to step on toes, except scripture's doing that, so sorry if you wore sandals. But he does say, for you all. And there's no exception. In Paul's mind, who does that include? Euodia and Syntyche? People causing a disturbance in the church? You'll see in chapter 4, he says, but I love these women. They've labored side by side with me. Even if now they're doing things wrong, yet I feel affection for them. Do you feel the affection of Christ Jesus right now for everybody in this room? <laughs> Say, well, maybe this much for them and this much for them. But Paul is saying toward all of them, we're a family in Christ. And you know you get in conflict with your siblings in a biological family, but you're still siblings. And your mom will tell you, you've got to love each other. And that's what scripture is telling you about all believers. This is Paul's attitude. This has to be your attitude toward everyone. You have to think of the local church not just as something you do on a Sunday morning. You cannot think of your, and this happens, it's easy for this to happen. You cannot think of your main community as anything outside the believers here. Forget the building. I'm talking about the believers here. If your main identity is a coffee shop you frequent or the job you work at with your coworkers or your school or anything and it's not believers in the local fellowship that's a problem we are paul will emphasize this over and over throughout this letter you have to think of us as doing what we are coworkers side by side all of us on an assembly line producing the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It is a hostile world and we're producing this product together. You put this piece on it, I put this piece on it. We're gifted variously so that together, co-workers in the gospel, we produce one product. I'm not fighting you, I'm fighting with you. And so you have to think of us, as Paul will say of Epaphroditus, not just a co-worker, but fellow soldiers in a single trench. The world is hostile toward us. That's why there's a defense and confirmation of the gospel. It is a, Paul says, crooked and twisted generation. But you and me, we hold fast together to the word of life. We are fighting this battle together with each other, not against each other. It can feel that way, but it's not. Side by side. That's what he says of the Philippians. You're partakers with me of grace. Meaning, I have the privilege, the favor. That's what grace means. I have the favor and the privilege of Proclaiming the gospel, defending and confirming it, even here in chains. And you guys are on my team. We're doing this together. And because we're doing this together, I can't help but feel a, a, an emotion toward you. In a big hostile world like this, look, you and I, as Christians, we've got enough enemies, don't we? So our faith that we value more than anything the world doesn't like it. It calls it nasty names like fundamentalism. And the work that we're doing, trying to defend and confirm the gospel, the world calls it nasty names like proselytizing. And 
When you're striving toward holiness to support the gospel by your own life, the world calls that nasty names like puritanical, not in a good sense, or prudish. That's the whole world out there. It hates you. Jesus said it hates you and has to hate you. Hated him, hates you. In fact, billions and billions of dollars are being poured every day into this massive cosmic machine under the guidance of the devil intended to crush your faith into small dust. That's not how you see life. You're seeing life wrong. But it's because of the hostility out there that when we come into the church as believers, you and me, look, there's enough hostility out there. I don't know about you. I don't want to add one ounce to that. It's a million pounds. I don't want to add one ounce to the conflict and the difficulty we already experience. So within the church, Paul is saying, look, I've got you in my heart because you're working with me. I'm side by side with you. I might be an apostle, but I'm a servant of Christ Jesus just like you, side by side with you. We're working together and therefore, I can't help but love you. It's a real basis of unity. Sometimes within the church, our conflicts are born from the fact that we become a little bit more like a community club, a little bit more like we're just hanging out and being friends, and that's when lots of conflicts arise. But what Paul is saying is, I don't think of you that way. We're in a battle, and I'm getting shot at, and you're next to me shooting in the same direction. So you're my friend, affection towards you. That's what he's sharing with them. Really, it's, if I can borrow an image from G.K. Chesterton, the troubles of this past year personally have made me feel a little bit like Robinson Crusoe. Remember, he was shipwrecked. When he was on the boat, all the items on the boat were like, okay, there's a chair, that's nice. But once he was shipwrecked and he gets over to the island and there's a long list given in Robinson Crusoe of all the items that come in off of the flotsam, off of the shipwreck, and every item is like a chair <laughs> because you don't have much now and that's us as believers. It's not just, oh, a believer, oh, a believer. It's like the world wants to crush you everywhere you look. It's in the media, it's at work, it's everywhere. Oh, a believer. <laughs> united with you because of that very reason. So you can, to use another metaphor, think of me as that little volleyball with the handprint in Castaway that Tom Hanks is so obsessed with and we laugh at him, but it's because it's all he's got. That's how Paul feels about the Philippians. Paul has the entire Roman Empire crushing down upon him. So when he thinks of the Philippians, he says, you guys have a partnership with me in the gospel. You and I, we partake of this great privilege of defending and confirming the gospel that the world wants to destroy. And because of that, that's the logic, because of that, I love you guys. I feel an affection. I have you in my heart. So this, then, base of the pyramid, most of the verses in our passage, are the affection Paul feels toward the saints at Philippi. But like I said, that's not the primary focus even, because the logic of verses three through eight all fall upon verse six. And verse six is the top of the pyramid. It's built on Paul's affection for the believer. So if he feels this affection because of their partnership in the gospel, 
What does that lead Paul to? Verse 6, and I am sure of this. This is what it's right for me to feel about you because of my affection. The next verse will say, I'm sure of this. I'm confident of this. I'm persuaded of this. That he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul felt certain that the Philippian saints who professed faith in Christ, who had been supporting him in his ministry, who had been laboring in Philippi, who had been persecuted probably there, he looks at them and he says, listen, just a few more weary days and then you and me, day of Christ Jesus, everything will be vindicated. This life's hard. You know this life's hard and it's hard as a Christian. Just a few more weary days and then the day of Jesus Christ comes, Christ God, who started this work in you, completes it. That's where Paul's heart leads him to feel a confidence that this will be true. There's an important point here in Paul's attitude when it comes to how we think about each other also. You and I know that I can't look into your heart and see with a scientific certainty exactly your status before God. You know that there are many people, and Jesus said it would be true, who will come to a church like this and never know Christ. But we'll think you do because you look like a Christian. But you don't have a vital living relationship with Christ that's transforming you from the inside. I don't know that. Unless you fall into some flagrant immorality or sin or there's just such a clear deadness about you, I won't know that about you. If there is some flagrant sin, that's where church discipline comes in to help to expose that. But for the most part, I simply won't know that. So you and I might think, because I can't know that for sure about you, I've always got to eye you with a certain skepticism because you might be an apostate. You look just like a Christian, but I know any time because I've seen it happen to others, you might jump off ship. And therefore, I'm never going to get too close because I don't know. I don't really know you. I don't know spiritually where you're at. Is that the way that Paul thinks about other believers? I mean, Paul is a long way from Philippi. There's so much he doesn't know. And yet those few things he does know convince him. He loves them. Because he loves them, he says, I feel confident that God has started a work in you. And I feel confident that he will complete it. And verse 7, when he says feel, he says, it's right for me to feel this way. It's exactly how I should feel about you. The Greek word there has more to do with the mind than our word feel suggests. This is Paul thinking about them, and he's convinced in his mind, unless you give me evidence to the contrary, you look like a believer, walk like a believer, I'm going to assume you're a believer. We're going to have fellowship together. Again, I know. I'm not pretending everyone in this room's a believer. Some of you aren't. You need Christ. That's why we preach the gospel here every week from the pulpit, so that you would know Christ. Not to minimize that, but how are we true believers to interact? Not with a skepticism to keep you at a distance because I don't know your spiritual status, never will. How can I have close fellowship with you then? I think that John Calvin was right when he talked about the visible church. When you come into an actual church and see people professing Christ, he said what God requires of us in this church is, quote, a certain charitable, it's generous, charitable judgment whereby we recognize as members of the church those who by confession of faith, so you say you're a Christian, 
by example of life, no clear blatant sin, and by partaking of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's table, profess the same God and Christ with us. What Calvin's saying is what Paul's expressing here. Don't live skeptical. Who's going to leave? Who's going to be a false Christian? Who's going to betray you? Paul says, I love you. And because I love you and feel affection, I feel confident that God started a work in you and he, he, not based on you, but he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I can say, in honesty, this is how I feel about you. Isn't this how you feel about one another? You've had so many people serving, loving you, writing you notes, giving you encouragements, visiting you in difficulty in the hospital when you're down and out, and you do develop this affection. And God gives us this text just to stir that up again in us and say, just like we see here, you have to keep working at your love for each other. You have to keep choosing to prioritize the good over the bad. You have to keep choosing not to be skeptical about each other. Most all of you have the blood of the lamb over your doorposts, and I would die for you. And I think you would die for me too. And if ever, for the sake of the gospel, we were called upon to die for the gospel, there's no one I'd rather die than next to you. And I hope you feel that way as well. So let's think this way about each other. With a confidence about your future and God's work in you, and with the affection of Christ Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the example you have given to us in Paul, who commands us later in this letter to keep our eyes who walk according to the example that we have in him. So we are keeping our eyes this morning on the example we have in Paul, who loved the Philippians and Paul and all the Philippian saints are now dead. They have entered into glory and are living a much better life. They have departed to be with Christ, which is much better. But now it's us as their spiritual descendants. And we are called upon to have this same attitude in ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, that in all humility, we would count the interests of each other more important than our own, that we would have a rich affection for each other, which we would, like a garden, regularly weed and pull out those things that would corrupt it. Help us to be quick to address problems with each other, but quicker to encourage one another. Help us to have a commitment to each other that is like a covenant, that is like your relationship with us, that we would have that same sort of love one toward another that would allow us to overlook the idiosyncrasies and annoyances that we in this life have to provoke in each other. Help us to live up to what we have attained in the gospel by having a community that people in Evansville cannot find at any bar, in any coffee shop, in any classroom, at any workplace. Help us to have a love for one another that can truly be called the affection of Christ Jesus. For your name's sake, 